only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Recorded live. Audio. Howdy ho. It's Michael the Hermit Adams and it's old religion dystopia, knowing versus belief. I'm going to do more reading out of the inspired and amazing book from an amazing man, which I wish was still around, David McGowan. Where scenes inside the, the canyon, Laurel Canyon, covert ops, and dark heart of the hippie dream. It is, of course, old religion dystopia. Knowing versus belief. The great struggle that every man has if they wake up to that. Of knowing versus belief, and how that most of us have been well, all of us have been driven by beliefs that are not necessarily based on facts. There's no necessarily any uh, provable, demonstrative, repeatable evidence to support any of it. Not all things in this world are lies, but most of what we basically just believe in is Vito and his freakers, the sinister roots of hippie culture, chapter six. Call them freaks, the underground, the counterculture, flower children or hippies, they are all loose labels for the youth culture of the 60s. Barry Miles, author of The Hippies, quote, Fito was in his 50s, but he had four-way sex with goddesses. He held these clay sculpturing classes on Laurel Avenue teaching rich Beverly Hills uh, do-waggers how to sculpt. And that was the birds' rehearsal room. Then Jim Dixon had an idea to put them on at Ciro's on the basis that all the freaks would show up and the birds would be their Beatles, Kim Flowley, Folly, excuse me. Uh, quote, this is how I remember my life. Other folks may not have the same memories, even though we might have shared some of the same experiences. 
So begins David Crosby's autobiography, Long Time Gone, co-written by Carl Gottlieb. Strange name. Probably Jewish. Uh, never mind. As it turns out, quite a few other folks seem to remember some people in Crosby's life who are all but ignored in the lengthy book. The names are casually dropped only once, not by Crosby, but rather by but rather in a quote from Bird's manager Jim Dixon, in which he describes the scene at the Sunset Strip clubs when the birds were playing. Quote, we had them all. We had Jack Nicholson dancing. We had Peter Fonda dancing with Odetta. We had Vito and his freaks, end quote. Following that brief mention by Dixon, Gott Lieb, briefly explains to readers that, quote, Vito and his freaks were an acid-drenched extended family of brain-damaged co-inhabitants, and that in an incredibly self-indulgent 489-page tome is the only mention you will find of, quote, Vito and his freaks, end of quote. Despite the fact that by just about all their accounts, the group dismissed as, quote, brain-damaged co-inhabitants, end quote, played a crucial role in the early success of Crosby's band and in the early success of Arthur Lee's band and in the early success of Frank Zappa's band and in the early success of Jim Morris's band, but especially in the early success of David Crosby's band. As Barry Miles noted in his biography of Frank Zappa, quote, the birds were closely associated with Vito and the Freaks. Vito Paul Likas, uh, Vito Paul Likas, his wife, oh gosh, S Z O U, Suzu, or Suzu, Suzu, and Carl. Zoni, the leaders of the group of about 35 dancers whose antics enlivened the birds' early gigs. And a quote. In Waiting for the Sun, Barney Hoskins wrote that the early success of the birds and other bands was due in no small part to Quote, the roving troop of self-styled freaks led by ancient beatnik Vito Palikas and his trusty, lusty sidekick, Carol 
Carl Franzoni. Elvin, quote, Snoopy, and a quote, uh, Feisterer, former drummer and keyboardist for the band Love, went further still, claiming that Vito actually, quote, got the birds together. As I remember, they did a lot of rehearsing at his pad, end quote. According to various other accounts, the birds did indeed utilize Vito's pad as a rehearsal studio, as did Arthur, Arthur Lee's band, and more importantly, the freaks drew the crowds into the clubs to see the fledgling bands perform. But as important as their contribution was to helping launch the careers of the Laurel Canyon bands, quote, Vito and the freaks, and the quote, were notable for something else as well. According to Barry Miles, writing in his book Hippie, the first hippies in Hollywood, perhaps the first hippies anywhere, were Vito, his wife, Suzu, I guess that's how you pronounce it, or Azu, Captain, this is what it says, fuck, and their group of about 35 dancers calling themselves freaks. They lived in a semi-communal life and engaged in sex orgies and freeform dancing whenever they could. End of quote. Some of, the, of those who were uh, on the scene at the time agree with Miles' assessment that Vito and his troupe were indeed the very first hippies. Lee Author, for example, boasted that they, quote, started the whole hippie thing. Vito, Carl, Suze, Beetle, Bob, Brian, and me, end of quote. One of David Crosby's fellow birds, Chris Hillman, also credited the strange group with being at the forefront of the hippie movement. Quote, Carl and all those guys were way ahead of everyone on hippiedom fashion, end of quote. Ray Manzarek of The Doors remembered them as well. Quote, there were these guys named Carl and Vito, who had a dance troupe of gypsy freaks. They were let into let in for free because they were these quintessential hippies, which was great for the for tourists, in the quote. If these rather colorful people really were the very first hippies, the very first riders of the counterculture wave, then we should probably try to get to know them. As it turns out, however, that is not such an easy thing to do. Most accounts, and there aren't all that many, offer little more than a few names, with no consensus agreement on how those first names are even spelled. Carl with a K and Carl with a C appear interchangeably, as do uh, I don't know. Zoo or Zisu. 
So either S-Z-O-U or Z-S-O-U. And Gadot or Gato or Gado. Gadot or Gado. But for you, dear readers, because I am a giver, I have gone the extra mile and sifted through the detritus to, to dig up at least some of the sordid details. By all accounts, the troop was led by one Beto Palikas, whose full name was, oh my goodness, Vitautas Alfonso Palikas, born the son of a Lithuanian sausage maker on May 20th, 1913. What a fateful year, huh? You got the uh, Federal Reserve Act upheld, and then you got all these weirdos showing up, too. Vito hailed from Lawrence, Massachusetts, though some accounts claim it was Lowell, Massachusetts. Parrots John and Rose Thalekas had three other kids, given Vito an older sister named Albina and two younger brothers, Bro, Nislo, and John. Some accounts claim that from an from a young age, Vito developed a habit of running afoul of the law. According to Miles, for example, Vito spent a year and a half in a reformatory as a teenager and was busted several times after that. A family member, though, disputes those claims. What isn't disputed is that in 1938, he was convicted of armed robbery and handed a 25-year sentence following a botched attempt at holding up a movie theater. In 1932, at the height of the Great Depression, he won a marathon dance competition held at Revere Beach. Uh, His winnings had given him a taste of the good life that he was thereafter unable to sustain, leading to the robbery attempt. In 1942, for just four years after his conviction, Vito had, was released into custody, so to speak, of the U.S. Merchant Marines, a branch of the U.S. Navy during wartime. Ostensibly, to escort ships running lead lease missions. Following his release from the service, circa 1946, he arrived in Los Angeles. Two years later, a curious event played out in another part of the country, a document as documented in the February 23, 1948 edition of Time Magazine. One morning last week, this in quotes, bespeckled Brian Bowden, editor of 
weekly Ochicobi, Ochicobi, Florida news soldered into Ochicobi courthouse and stopped to eye the bulletin board in the main hall. Among the marriage license applications, which by Florida law must be publicly posted for three days before a ceremony, he saw something which made him, uh, I guess, Google. Goggle. Winthorpe Rockefeller, 35, of New York, the fourth of uh, John D. Rockefeller, first, Rockefeller Jr.'s five sons, and one of the most eligible bachelors in the world, has stated his intention of marrying one Eva Sears, also of New York. Editor Bowden had a bitter moment. His paper would not be published for two days. Then he remembered that he was the Okchikobi correspondent for the Associated Press. He telephoned the AP office in Jacksonville. A few hours later, the whole U.S. journalistic horizon glowed a bright pink with the fireworks he had touched off. While the first headlines blazed, and while Manhattan gossip columnists scrambled to assure their readers that they had known all about the romance for months, herds of reporters were dispatched to find an answer to the question, who is Eva Sears? Hearst Trolley Nickenbacher uh, I guess is Heine Cassini uh, sorry for butchering that name heartedly announced that she was Mrs. Barbara Paul Sears of the fine old Philadelphia Pauls and thus a society girl of impeccable pedigree. He was wrong. Indeed he was. So who was this mystery mystery woman? This woman who, as it turned out, had once been a brief had once had a brief career in Hollywood before moving to Paris and taking a job as a secretary at the U.S. Embassy. She appears to have gone by many names at different times of her life, including including Eva Paul, Eva Paul Sears, Barbara Paul, Barbara Paul Sears, and Bobo Rockefeller. None of them, however, was the name she was given at the time of her birth, as time noted. Her parents were Lithuanian immigrants, and she was born Givot, Givot Paul Lekiot, Le Le 
something like that. I don't know. Giavot Palakiot and a coal patch near Noblestown, PA, end of quote. Even that, however, was not her real name, at least not by American custom and tradition. Her parents' homeland, Apollo Kyoto, is the feminine version of Palinkas. Eve Paul's father, as it turns out, just happened to be the brother of Vito Palinkas' father. In fact, verified by and brought to my attention by a member of the Palinkas family. I am no genealogist, but I am pretty sure that that means that the self-styled, quote, king of the hippies, end of quote, was, and probably enough, a first cousin of Bobo Rockefeller and a cousin-in-law, for lack of a better term, of Winthrop Rockefeller himself. Vito was also a cousin of a couple of a couple's only child. Winthrop Paul Rockefeller, who would later serve as lieutenant governor of the state of Arkansas. The Paul family, alas, missed Winthrop and Bobo's day of celebration. According to Time, quote, Bobo's mother and stepfather were unable to attend the ceremony because they were making a batch of Lithuanian cheese on their Indiana farm, end of quote. I guess we all have our priorities. Truth to be told, the Palikas clan had a somewhat different explanation. They were deliberately excluded from the ceremony as it was felt that they were a bit too uncultured to break bread with the likes of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor and the Marquis of Bladeford. As Vito, he appears to have rather quickly established himself in Los Angeles as a respected artist-slash-sculptor. As early as August of 1949, the Los Angeles Times announced that an art exhibit at the Blitmore Hotel was to feature his work. In May of 1956, another announcement held that there would be an exhibition by, quote, Vito and his students, end quote, to be held at the Vito Clay Studios on Laurel Avenue. Another announcement in February of 1958 alerted readers that a gallery on La oh boy, uh, Sinega, I guess it's Sinega Boulevard, would be featuring the work of sculpture, quote, Vito Bolaka, 
end the quote. And the next year, in May of 1959, a gallery on Beverly Boulevard was scheduled to host an exhibit featuring the work from Vito Clay Studios, end the quote. Also during the decade of the 50s, Vito married and fathered two children. So that marriage had melted down by the time the 60s rolled around. It was Vito's second marriage, his first having been to a teen bride back in his marathon dancing days before his prison stint. On July 7, 1961, he married yet again to a aforementioned Suzu, I guess that's how she pronounced it, whose real name is Susan Cynthia Schaefer. Vito was 48 at the time, and Suzu was just 18. Wow, he was a real stud. I get what he wanted, huh? She had only, she had been only 16 when they met, and Vito and Suzu made their home in an unassuming building at the corner of Laurel Avenue and Beverly Boulevard, just below the mouth of Laurel Canyon and practically within spitting distance of J. Sebring's hair salon. At street level was Suzu's clothing boutique, which had been credited by some uh, seamsters with being the very first to introduce hippie fashions. Upstairs were living quarters for Vito and Suzu and their firstborn son, Godo, or Gado. Downstairs was what was known as the Vito Clay Studio, where, according to Miles and various others, Pelicas made a living of sorts by giving clay modeling lessons to Beverly Hill matrons who found the atmosphere in his studio exciting. According to most accounts, it wasn't really a May entombed decor. My entombed decor of the studio that many of the matrons found so exciting, but rather Vito's reportedly insatiable sexual appetite and John whole Mesian physique. And in any event, Vito's students also apparently included such Hollywood luminaries as Jonathan Winters, Mickey Rooney, and Steve Allen. As for his earnest while sidekick, Carl Orris. Orestes, or God, I wish I could pronounce Orestes Fernando. Orestes, Carl Orestes Franzani, Franzani. He had claimed in interviews that his quote mother was a countess in the quote, and his father quote was a stone carver from. Rutland, Vermont. The family was brought from Italy 
from the quarries in the northern part of Italy to cut stone for the monuments of the United States, end of quote. That would make his ancestors, it stands to reason, of considerable importance in the Masonic community. And there were, in fact, a couple of brothers named Franzoni who were brought over from Italy in the early 1800s to carve the Masonic Monument in Washington, according to Ina Ferries. I guess it is Ferries. Ferries. They built the capital, uh, uh, Giuseppe Franzoni, who came over with his brother Carlo, quote, had especially good family connections in Italy, he being the nephew of Cardinal Franzoni and son of the president of the Academy of Fine Arts at Carrera. End quote. Also making their way to New York were Francisco Lardella, the cousin of Franzoni's brothers, and Giovanni Andri, and Andri, I guess what it is, a brother-in-law of Giuseppe Franzoni. By Carlo Franzoni's own account, he, he himself grew up as something of a young hoodlum in Cincinnati, Ohio, and later went into do business with some shady Sicilian, Sicilian, Sicilian excuse me, shady Sicilian character selling mail order breast and penis pump out of an address on L.A.'s fabled Melrose Avenue. As Franzoni remembered it, his business, quote, partner's name was Scalese, Scalese, Joe Scalese, the same name as the famous murderer Scalese, probably from the same family, probably so. Franzoni, born circa 1934, hooked up with older Pelecas sometime around 1963 and soon after became his constant sidekick. Also in the troupe was young Rory Flynn, Canyonite Errol Flynn's statuesque daughter, a bizarre character named Ricky Applebaum, who had half a mustache on one side of his face and half a beard on the other. Most of the young girls who would later become part of Frank Zappa's GTO project and a lot of other colorful characters who donned uh, pseudonyms like Linda Bopp and uh, Butchie and Beetle Bob and Emerald and Karen Yum Yum. 
also fitting about or flitting about the periphery of the dance troupe were Navy Brett, Gail Slotman, and a curious character of the L.A. music scene by the name of Kim Foley. Slotman and Foley were, for a time, closely allied and even cut a record together. America's Sweethearts, the Foley Proud, that Foley produced in 1966, of course, Foley produced a record for Vito as well, billed as Vito and the Hands, a seven-inch single, Where It's At, which featured the musicianship of some of Frank Zappa's Mothers of Invention cohorts, came no closer to entering the charts than did Foley and Slotman's efforts. Slotman, though, soon found work as an assistant to and booking agent for Elmer Valentine, whom we will meet shortly. Foley's, as with so many other characters in the story, has a rather interesting history. He was born in 1939, the son of actor Douglas Foley, a World War II Navy veteran and attendee of St. Francis Xavier Military Academy. Bang, 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 morning, 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 morning. Jesuits, Jesuits, Jesuits. According to the young Foley's account, he was initially abandoned to a foster home, but later taken back and raised by his father. He grew up in upscale Malibu, California, where he shared his childhood home with a bunch of actors and guys from the Navy, in quotes. At the age of six and a half, Foley had an unusual experience that he later shared with author Michael Walker, dressed up in a sailor suit by his dad and his Navy buddies. He was taken, quote, to a photographer named William, who took a picture of me in a sailor suit. His studio was next door to the Canyon Country Store. Right after that, he was driven down to Laurel Canyon Boulevard to a near mystical squab drugstore, Squab's drugstore, where everybody cheered and two coarse girls grabbed my six-year-old crotch and balls and stuck a candy cigarette in my mouth. It's probably safe to assume that childhood experience such as that helped to prepare Folly for his later employment as a young male street hustler, a profession that he practiced on the seedy streets of the City of Angels. By Foley's own account, I should add, just as it was James Dean himself who claimed to have worked those same streets with Nick Adams, following that, Foley spent some time serving 
with the Army National Guard, after which he devoted his life to working in the L.A. music industry as a musician, writer, and producer, as well as, according to some accounts, a master manipulator. Around 1957, Mfale played in a band known as the Sleepwalkers, alongside future Beach Boy Bruce Johnston, at times a diminutive, diminutive young guitarist named Phil Spector, who had moved out to L.A. with his mother not too many years earlier following the suicide of his father when Phil was just nine. Set in with the group during the 1960s, Folly was best known for producing such ridiculous yet beloved novelty songs as the Hollywood Argyles, Alley Oops, Alley Oop, and their uh, Rivingtons, and Papa Momo that he also did more respectable work such as collaborating with some Birds tracks and having some of his original songs covered by both the Beach Boys and the Flying Burrito Brothers. In 1975, Folly would have perhaps his greatest success when he credited the Runaways further lowering the bar than Frank Zampa had already set rather low some years earlier when he had created and recorded the G.O.T.s. The Runaways featured underage versions of Joan Jett and Lita Ford, whom Folly tastefully attired in leather and light lingerie. As he would later boast, everyone loved the idea of 16-year-old girls in a band, including... Uh, Cherry Curry, who later rescued Folly from, accused Folly of requiring them to perform sexual services for him and his associates at prerequisite, as a prerequisite for membership in the group. Prior to assembling the Runaways, one of Folly's proudest accomplishments was producing the 1969 album, I'm Back and I'm Proud, by rockabilly pioneer Gene Vincent, featuring backing vocals of Kenyanite Linda Ronstad. Just two years later, Vincent, a Navy veteran raised in the uh, the pen, in that penultimate Navy town, Norfolk, Virginia, died unexpectedly on October 12, 1971, due reportedly to a ruptured stomach ulcer. Not long before his death, Vincent had been on tour in the UK, but he had hastily returned to the US due to pressure from, among others, promoter Don Arden, known none too affectionately as Al Capone of Pop. Arden had a penchant for guns and violence, and he was known to openly boast 
of his affiliation with powerful organized crime figures. In addition to being a business partner of equally nefarious Michael Jeffrey, Arden was also the father of Sharon Osborne and the former manager of her husband's band, Black Sabbath. But here I have surely digressed. So let's try to bang this back around to where we left off. At least as early as 1962, not long before Carl Franzoni joined the group, the freak troupe was already hitting the clubs a couple nights each week to refine their unique style of dance, perhaps best described as a epileptic seizure set to music, as show off their distinctively unappealing, though soon to be quite popular, fashion scene. In those early days, they danced to local black R&B bands and to band out of Fresno known as uh, Gachos, as the Gachos, and dives far removed from the fable Sunstrip. Because Franzoni has said, there were no white bands in L.A. yet, and there were no clubs on the Sunset Boulevard, in a quote. That, of course, was all about to quickly change, as if by magic, new clubs began to spring up along the legendary Sun Strip, beginning around 1964, and old clubs considered to be long past their prime miraculously reemerged. In January 1964, a young Chicago vice cop named Elmer Valentine opened the doors to the now world famous. Whiskey a go go nightclub. Just over a year later, in spring of 1965, he opened a second, soon to be wildly popular club, The Trip. Not long before that, near the end of 1964, the legendary Ciro's nightclub began undergoing extensive renovations. Opened in 1940 by Billy Wilkerson an associate of Bugsy Siegel, the upscale club had flourished for the first 20 years of his existence, which a clientele that regularly included Hollywood royalty and organized crime figures. By the early 1960s, though, the strip was dead and the once prestigious club had gone to seed. Cicero's reopened in early 1965, or Ciro's reopened in early 1965, just before the trip opened its doors, and just in time, as it turned out, to host the very first club appearance by the musical act that was about to become the first Laurel Canyon band to commit a song to vinyl, The Birds. In 1967, Gazaras Gazaris had opened up on the strip as well. And in the early seventies, Valentine would open yet another club that endures to this day, the Roxy. Smaller clubs like the 
London Fog where the Doors got their first booking as the house band in early 1966 opened their doors to the public in the mid-60s as well. The timing of the opening of Valentine's first two clubs and the reopening of Zero's could not have been any more fortuitous. The paint was barely dry on the walls of the new clubs when bands like Love and The Doors and The Birds and Buffalo Springfield and The Turtles and The Mothers of Invention and The Mamas and The Papas and The Loving Spoonful came knocking. The problem, however, was the new clubs were not yet known to the general public. Cyril's had been long left for dead, and nobody had the slightest idea who any of these newfangled bands were. What was needed then was a way to create a buzz around the clubs that would draw people in and kickstart the strip back to life, as well as, of course, launch the careers of the new bands. The bands themselves could not be expected to fill the new clubs, since Besides being unknown, they also, and yeah, I know that you don't really want to hear this, and I will undoubtedly be deluged with letters of complaint, but I'm going to say it anyway, weren't very good, at least not in their live incarnations. To be sure, they sounded great on vinyl, but that was largely due to the fact that the band members themselves didn't actually play on the records, at least not in the early days. Their rich vocal harmonies that were the trademark of the Laurel Canyon sound were created in the studio with a good deal of multi-tracking and overdubs. On stage, it was another matter entirely. Enter then the wildly flamboyant and colorful freak squad who were one key component of the strategy and that was devised to lure patrons into the clubs. Vito and Carl's dancers were a fixture on the Sunstrip scene from the very moment that a new clubs opened that new clubs opened their doors to the public, and they were by all accounts, treated like royalty by the club owners, as John Hartman, proprietor of the Kaleidoscope Club and brother of comedian Phil Hartman, acknowledged he, quote, would let Vito Vito and his dancers into the Kaleidoscope free every week because they attracted people. And they were really hippies. And so we had to have them. They got in free pretty much everywhere they went. They blessed your joint. They validated you. If they're if they're the essence of hippydom, if they are the essence of hippydom, and you're trying to be a hippie nightclub, you need you need hippies. As a aforementioned Kim Foley put it, the characteristic bluntness, quote, 
a band didn't have to be good as long as the dancers were there, end of quote. Indeed, the band was largely irrelevant other than to provide some semblance of a soundtrack for the real show, which was taking place on the dance floor. Gail Zappa once candidly admitted that even at her husband's shows, the real action was not on the stage. The customers came to see the freaks dance, and nobody ever talks about that. But that was the case, in the quote. Freak Zampa added, as soon as they arrived, they would make things happen because they were dancing in a way nobody had seen before, screaming and yelling out on the floor and doing all kinds of weird things. They were dressed in a way that nobody could believe, and they gave life to everything that was going on, in the quote. For reasons that clearly had more to do with boosting attendance at the clubs than with the dancing abilities displayed by the group, Vito and Carl seem to have become minor media darlings over the course of the 60s and into the 70s. The two can be seen separately and together in a string of cheap exploitation films, including Modo, Bizarro, the 19th, from 1966, Something's Happening, a.k.a. The Hippie Revolt from 1967, The Notorious Mondo Hollywood, also released in 1967, and You Are What You Eat, with David Crosby, Frank Zappa, and Tiny Tim, which hit the theaters in 1968. In 1972, Vito made his acting debut in a non-documentary film, The White Horse Gang. Paul Likas, or Likas reportedly also popped up on Groucho Marx's You Bet Your Life, and Franzoni made an appearance on a 1968 Dick Clark TV special, the Golden Child. Gado Polekas was featured in a photo in Life magazine circa 1966, really. And the whole troupe showed up for an appearance on The Tonight Show. According to Barry Mills, Vito also, quote, appeared regularly on The Joe Pine Show and in between the bare Rested Girls in the late 50s and the early 60s mag, men magazines. Joe Pine, for those of you too young to remember, is the guy we have to thank for paying the way for the likes of Bill O'Reilly, excuse me, paving the way for the likes of Bill O'Reilly, Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Michael Savage, Don Imus, Morton Downey Jr., Jerry Springer, and Wally George. Mr. Pine, the Y, you see, was the guy who pioneered the confrontational interview style favored by so many today. And the decorative Marine Corps veteran debuted as a talk radio host in 1950 and quickly became known for insulting and demeaning anyone who dared to disagree with them. 
guests and listeners alike. In 1957, he moved his show to L.A. And by 1965, he was nationally syndicated both on radio and on television. His favorite targets, as you may have guessed, included hippies, feminists, gays, anti-war activists, and his interviews frequently ended with his guests either walking off or being thrown off the stage. Nearing the peak of his popularity, Pine died on March 23rd, 1970, at the age of 45, reportedly lung cancer. He I Ideologi- his ideological offspring, however, live on. That'd be the end of that chapter. Interesting world that most of us never knew about. And thank goodness for re- true researchers like Dave McGowan, and we need more of them. Uh, I wish I was had the ability and the talent to do so, but I don't. So what I do is do, well, research of researchers. Because I'm not smart enough. Do simple drawings and paintings. And ask questions that most don't want to ask. Well, what a week it's been so far, huh? Cannibalism, um, uh, the hippie scene, the Laurel Canyon, the fabricated hippie scene, the um, troglodytes. I haven't done much about that yet. But the cannibals and the wild men and um, uh, Indian folklore. Now the ugly, dark truth of uh, Eurasia and how cannibalism was a daily activity. It seems like, at least weekly, experience for most Europeans. Our descendants. Are we the walking dead already in many ways that we can realize? I don't know. I say so. But there's more to the story of life than meets the eye. That's for sure. Oh, this is just for your consideration and mine. I can't say I have all the answers and that I know much of anything. That I can say proudly. Not because really anything to be proud of, but because, well, show sincerity, honesty, and a realization. Uh, uh, a recognition of my reality. Yours too. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.